Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining our show today. I'm Dr. Nazanin Moali, and this is Sexology Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about male sexual arousal. I know this is a topic that few of you guys wanted to hear more about. We talked about uh, women sexual arousal and desire in episode 29 with Dr. Tolman and also episode 7 with Dr. Stacy, which is one of the most downloaded episodes. So if you wanted to know more about those topics, please go back and listen to those episodes. The focus of our show today is on male sexual arousal because of my understanding and based on my experience that there are so many myths and misconceptions when it comes to male sexual arousal. People sometimes have this simplistic perspective and knowledge about it. And I, and I am so excited that uh, my guests and I were going to talk further about some of those myths and some of the challenge that some men are experiencing. Our guest today is Dr. Pomeranz. Dr. Pomeranz is a licensed clinical psychologist and sex therapist with a practice in Silicon Valley. In addition to her private practice, she also works as a staff psychologist at Stanford University. Dr. Pomeranz earned her doctorate in clinical psychology in the Bay Area and has worked in a numerous of diverse settings, including San Francisco Jail, Salvation Army Rehabilitation Center, and UC Davis Medical System. She spent nine years at the Boston VA focusing on substance use disorders, sexual trauma, and out-of-control sexual behaviors. 
Dr. Pomerantz recognizes the importance between sexual and emotional well-being and believes that not enough clinicians are talking with their clients about this important topic. In her private practice in Menlo Park, she treats individuals who are struggling with a variety of sexual health concerns. Dr. Pomerantz is a member of ASAC and Bay Area Open Minds. Here's my conversation with Dr. Clifford Pomerantz. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. As I mentioned during the introduction, I am thrilled to have Dr. Clifford Pomerantz, clinical psychologist and sex therapist, to join us. Dr. P, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited having someone with your level of experience. I know I was reading the introduction and I'm amazed about the breadth of the experience that you have. So let's today we're going to talk about male sexual arousal. We talked about female sexual arousal a few episodes ago and two different episodes. And I definitely want to mention that I think we, we covered that, but I think male sexual arousal is equally important. That's why we invited Dr. P to join our show today. So let's start with talking about what are some gender differences in sexual arousal? Yeah, so the arousal process is quite complex and multifaceted. And I think we could probably spend a whole podcast episode just talking about this idea of, you know, what is male sexual arousal. Um, But with the time we have, I'm going to just talk about one part of the equation and how it may look different for males versus females. Um, So we used to think about arousal as a linear process. So anyone who's ever taken a basic human sexuality class probably learned about Masters and Johnson's four-stage sexual response cycle. And you might remember the diagram from class. It had the excitement phase, the plateau, the orgasm, and the resolution. And we were taught that this applied equally to women and men. But in reality, male and female sexual arousal is a lot more varied complicated, and not necessarily linear. So in the 90s, researchers at the Kinsey Institute came up with the idea of the dual control model. And basically what this model says is that there is a gas pedal and there's a brake. And so the gas pedal is the sexual excitation system and it responds to everything in the environment that your brain codes as sexually relevant. And it sends a signal to turn on. So this is everything that you see, smell, hear, touch, taste, or imagine. And then there's the break, which is the sexual inhibition system, which notices all of the potential threats in the environment, right? So these are all of the reasons that you probably shouldn't be turned on right now. So things like stress, grief, anxiety, fear, fatigue, and it sends a signal to turn off. So we often think that difficulties with sex are about a lack of stimulation to the gas pedal, but it actually turns out that there's a lot of, a lot of the sexual difficulties are actually caused by too much stimulation to the break. And so probably most listeners have had the experience of having a really tough day at work, right? Like a poor evaluation from a boss or maybe a disagreement with a coworker and 
you know, coming home and then finding it very difficult, right, to turn off your workday and connect sexually with your partner. So in terms of gender differences, men tend to be better at compartmentalizing their lives, and they're likely to be more sexually aroused uh, than women by putting pressure on the accelerator or the gas. So things like lingerie or porn or role play or sexy talk, while women are likely to be more sensitive to the brake pedal. And so for women, the arousal process is not simply about adding more gas, but actually letting up on the brakes. So things like having less stress in their lives or being in a safe environment, having a good body image or feeling emotionally connected to their partners. That is fascinating. And it's interesting that how this arousal is such a complicated topic. I know many people have this simplistic kind of perspective and attitude toward it, especially when it comes to men, because they think visually, they think if you see an erection, then it shows the arousal is there. But from what I'm hearing, it sounds like it's definitely more complicated than that. Absolutely. So one thing that I often hear a lot from my clients, they talk about that they're kind of curious about does penile erection hardness correspond to level of arousal? So they think like if my partner is not hard enough, he's not turned on. Is that accurate? Right. Um, Yeah. So not necessarily. So a man, we know, right, a man can experience an erection without desire and also can feel desire without having an erection. So for example, a man may feel really aroused, right? And ready for sex, but the erection just isn't happening. So an example that I commonly hear in my practice is uh, a man will say that he was out at a club and he was drinking quite heavily and he meets someone, right? And there's a lot of chemistry and he brings this person home and, and it's just, Nothing's happening, right? He's very aroused, but he just can't get it up. On the other hand, a man might wake up in the morning, right, with an erection, but actually doesn't feel turned on and wasn't even dreaming about sex. So genital response is not necessarily about arousal. It's just a response. So physiologically, uh, erections require the following three things. They require an adequate blood supply to the penis the brain being able to send the right signals to the penis, and then healthy erectile tissue. So a man may feel very aroused, but because of some kind of physiological disruption, this may not translate to a full erection. Yes, and I think what one thing as you were talking about made me think about some of my clients is that you know, you talked about people like hooking up. And I know in Southern <laughs> California, I definitely have a number of clients that there are dating and they're hooking up. And one of my clients was telling me that how he had this perception that all of his friends said like he was, they were taking women home. They were probably had no issues with erection. He was hard <laughs> on himself. And I said, look, well, maybe you want to check in with them because that's not at least what I hear from other clients. So that's interesting that we have this disillusion when it comes to other people's sexuality and we don't have an accurate picture. Right. And I think when our model is porn, right, where 
men are taking Viagra to right. maintain hard erections. Like if that's our example, then yeah, of course that would be our expectation. And I've actually mentioned that to clients too. Like, why don't you check in with your buddies? And they're like, yeah, no, that's like never going to happen. Right. Like we don't, we wouldn't ever talk about something like that. <laughs> right. And it's funny that you mentioned porn. It, like, you know, it's how, inaccurate can be like people having this lasting erection for what seems like an hours or so and how that that's something that that's definitely not natural or realistic for many men exactly so what are some common causes of sexual dysfunction in men yeah so first let's clarify what the main types of sexual dysfunctions are in men so uh, the first one would be premature ejaculation so this is when a man ejaculates too quickly. Uh, the second would be delayed ejaculation. So it takes a really long time to ejaculate or is unable to ejaculate at all. Uh, the third would be erectile disorder. So this is difficulty in maintaining erection or a decrease in erectile rigidity. And then the last one is uh, male hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So this is a lack of sexual thoughts and or desire. And so the cause of the sexual dysfunction is going to really depend on which one he has, right? But I can kind of maybe provide an overview of oh, some that of would the be fantastic. Yeah, some of the common causes. So the first cause would be physical causes. And so, you know, sexual dysfunctions can be caused by a number of medical conditions and so just to name a few like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, uh, prostate cancer, even things like smoking, also certain medications, so SSRIs, antipsychotics, or high blood pressure medications can really impact sexual functioning. So as a sex therapist, one of the first things we do is we make sure that a man right, talks to his uh, doctor or urologist to get this ruled out. There's also a number of psychological issues that can contribute to sexual dysfunction. And so the, there's those that are immediate causes that so like in the moment and those that are remote causes. So that develop over time. So in terms of immediate causes, right, we know the number one psychological cause of um, erectile dysfunction is performance anxiety because you need two things for an erection. You need arousal and relaxation. And so when an individual is anxious, it interrupts the brain sending messages to the penis to allow for extra blood flow. Some other immediate causes would be lack of stimulation and then relationship issues, right? So poor communication, desire discrepancy, a partner having sexual problems or a partner's health status. Uh, in terms of remote causes, so these are things that develop over time, uh, individual vulnerability factors. So these are things like a childhood history of sexual trauma, physical abuse, emotional abuse, poor body image, you know, having been laughed at, teased, or belittled about a past sexual experience, or having lost an erection due to one factor or another. So Something I've heard with my clients is like maybe a condom was too tight and they lost an erection or their parent walked in on them, right, when they were a kid and they were masturbating. Also, psychiatric comorbidities. So we're looking at things like depression, anxiety, 
low self-esteem or low self-confidence, life stressors. So as I talked about with the dual control model, so job loss, bereavement, financial difficulties, you know, a, a new kid in the house. We're also looking at sexual identity issues, uh, which can get in the way or cause sexual dysfunction. And then I think another super important one is religious or cultural taboos that cause guilt or shame around sexuality. Well, a number of great factors and elements. And as you mentioned, that we can go in depth in (laughs) many of them. And I love that you mentioned medication. I think that's an area that... Many of people, they don't necessarily aware how impactful the medication can be in their uh, sexual life. And they get surprised when, for example, I see definitely SSRIs is like the common one. Then the people, they don't, it's not like they're going to stop the medication. Then many times they consult with the physician, they change, switch the medication and the issue may resolve. And it's interesting that something that we create this, this big issue around might get resolved Easily. And uh, so I'm kind of curious. I want to check in with you about the sexual identity. Help us understand that a little bit more as far as how that might impact our sexual dysfunction. Yeah, I mean, I think that this also is, um, we could go into a, a lot around this, but not only who and how we see ourselves as sexual beings, and, you know, society obviously gives us kind of a lot around you know, women feeling like if they're interested in sex, maybe being sluts or men, the way that they're expected to act or behave around sex. So uh, some of the clients I work with considers themselves to be a little bit softer and more emotional and kind of, so there's that piece. But then also in terms of sexual identity or gender identity as well. I see. So part of it, it's a kind of around confidence, around self-image. The other part is like around sexual orientation and preferences. Mm-hmm. And, and gender as well. And so, I, you know, I work at Stanford and a lot of the work that we do there, some of the work we do there, I should say, is students kind of, you know, really exploring their sexual and, and gender identity, really, and kind of who, how does this fit for me and how does this work? within the context of school and should I come out to parents and family and yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just a, such a fascinating work. And I feel like people used to be like, you know, you're either man or a woman. And there right. was just this, they had this binary attitude toward gender. And it's now it's a galaxy of number of different options and you can be at any place in that galaxy. So I find that work definitely very interesting. Yeah, me too. So what what do you recommend a partner do if they notice that their their partner struggling with erectile problem? Because sometimes I feel people might personalize it. I know some of my clients, they think maybe my partner is not interested in me. Maybe I gain weight or maybe <laughs> like instead of kind of thinking about like a, not taking it personally. So what are some of your recommendations? Yeah, so absolutely what you're saying. And from that piece, like I'll speak to that piece first, I think it's super important that you deal with your own stuff, right? And so because of the, you can misinterpret that it's about you um, or a lack of interest, like I think it's super important that you try not to make it about you and that maybe you do some of your own work or work with your own therapist kind of around that piece. So 
I think everybody is sensitive to criticism, particularly about their sexual performance. And so obviously making fun of your partner, even if you're, it's just like in jest, um, being impatient with or cruel to your partner can be extremely detrimental. And I think men in particular tend to be deeply protective of their masculine identity. And so I often see clients in my practice who've been experiencing erectile problems as a direct result of a partner making fun of their performance, like 15 or 20 years prior to when they're coming to see me. So I think the best thing that a partner can do is really be kind and be compassionate and be reassuring and take the focus off of sexual performance, right? Just enjoy intimacy and together togetherness. And I think also it can be important to show willingness to support your partner, particularly if they're they're working with a sex therapist. Oftentimes, you know, we give homework that's partner homework. And so, you know, being agreeable to participate in the homework assignments and kind of being on the journey with your partner towards recovery. I love when you talked about being supportive of your partner's recovery, because based on my experience, Sometimes I have younger couples that they're struggling with this. And because of A, they didn't address it soon enough, they struggle with it for a couple of years, few years. And there is this resentment from the partner and that caused some issues with following through with the homework and being patient. Right, exactly. And also, I love that you talked about like doing your own work and kind of seeing that what part you're playing into this challenge, not necessarily you're causing the erectile dysfunction, but like you can support your partner. You have an option of kind of like being a supporting partner, but but what might get in your way and kind of exploring that? Right, because if you're triggered, right, every time your partner is, ha- is struggling and you're triggered and then you're going to trigger them and it's just you're you're like on this feedback loop that's not necessarily healthy. Right. And sometimes I find the opposite. So the couple, like, you know, the couple might have issues around erectile challenges few times. And it was so painful that kind of they stopped trying. Yep. And they kind of <laughs> give up on their sex life, which is very unfortunate as well. Exactly. Yeah, I've seen that too. So one of the myths, at least, at least what I think is a myth that people think with getting older, your sex drive is like destined to decline. But the other part of it is that I'm just checking in with you about, do you think is erectile dysfunction a normal part of an aging? Yeah, so it's estimated that uh, around 30 million men in the United States and 152 million men worldwide suffer from erectile disorder. And there is a correlation between aging and erectile disorder because of some of the factors that I talked about earlier, right, that happen with aging. So in in terms of medical or disease states that impact the penis. But I also see a number of 20 and 30 year olds in my practice who are suffering from this condition. So in all honesty, it's likely that a majority of men at some point in their lifetime are going to experience problems with erectile dysfunction. And I think that's so true that you mentioned that it can be 
normal to have some issues sometimes because right. when you're younger and you might kind of face that have this that challenge few times you might start panicking but again that's a very common experience that you mentioned and unless it's like a routine like a repeated pattern it's not necessarily a source of concern exactly yeah so I am so excited for the next question because you <laughs> shared that with me and I'm very curious. So you talked about how you do psychoeducation with some of the physicians around PDE5 inhibitors. So tell us how do you perceive that taking those medication might be harmful to people's relationships? Yeah, so um, PDE5 uh, PD inhibitors are... Um, probably the most common one we've heard about is Viagra, but there's also Cialis and Levitra, and I believe there's a, a few more on the market. And around 20 million men uh, around the world use these drugs regularly, and these drugs actually account for more than $3 billion in average sales. So we're, we know that they're you know, commonly used. So before I jump into talking about some of the problems uh, of utilizing these medications, I first want to make it clear that these medications can be lifesavers uh, for men who cannot obtain erection due to vascular issues or disability or other medical circumstances. And I think it's super important to acknowledge their utility. Um, but on the flip side of that, a large number of men seem to kind of be dodging their sexual difficulties by hiding behind a prescription because it's the easier thing to do, right? It's a a quick fix. And although sometimes I would, I guess I would also argue that it's sometimes it's not the easier thing to do and actually can create more problems in relationships. So I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about that today. And so that at least when people decide to ask for these medications or take these medications, they kind of have all of the information about how it might impact their relationships. That is so interesting because I see that that's the kind of first line of defense for most people. So when they exactly. have issues, they go to the, not even urologist, to their primary caregiver and they get prescribed the medication. And I love how you're talking about in some cases, it might mask the bigger issue and might, might cause people not to be aware of the underlying challenges. Right. Yeah. And so before I go on to talk about maybe some of the relationship difficulties these medications can cause, there's a couple of other pieces that I think might be interesting to discuss. So the first one is I think these medications can really reinforce sexual stereotypes. And so really taking these medications kind of reinforces the stereotype that a hard penis is necessary for good sex, right? And as sex therapists, that's a myth that we try to dispel. Right. So our role as sex therapists is like helping men see sexual pleasure as something that can be obtained through other means than just penetrative sex. Right. Right. And it's just kind of narrowed the definition, as you mentioned. That's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other piece is kind of the reliance on these medications, right? So we know that they only treat the symptom and not the underlying cause. And so we know that there's no physical dependence for using these medications, but there is a risk of psychological dependence. And so men can come to rely on these, these medications to perform, and they might experience kind of an increase in anxiety if they don't have them. I see. So it kind of makes like having a without medication erection more challenging. So it has might have some kind of a 
dependency and also placebo, not necessarily placebo, but kind of psychological effect. Exactly. Yeah. So in terms of the relationship difficulties these medications can cause, I think that um, it can cause a lot of misunderstanding and hurt between couples. And so oftentimes when men begin taking these medications like Viagra, they actually don't discuss it with their partner. And so I always say, like, imagine how you would feel if you came home one day and you're like rifling around in the medicine cabinet or maybe the closet and you happen to stumble upon your partner's Viagra prescription, right? And you had no idea that they needed it, that they had it, or that they were using it. That's so interesting. I just had this conversation last week with some of with one of my clients and she was talking about how she felt almost betrayed by discovering mm-hmm. the uh, her husband's uh, medication, the Viagra. And we'd had, we had this like family discussion around that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what would come up for you? Like, are, are they, you know, are they attracted to me anymore? Are they cheating? Like, what's going on? I have, right. this is such an important part of their life that they're not sharing that I think betrayal is, yeah, definitely an emotion I think a lot of people would feel. Right. And I get how some some men might feel shameful about bringing that up, because as you mentioned, many Many of them are invested, understandably, in this image of I'm this strong, masculine man and I wouldn't need the medication. So that would be a challenging conversation to have. Yeah, exactly. I think there is a lot of shame. So how do you recommend if there are men, actually, that they're taking it and they haven't discussed it with their partner to bring up the topic? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it would... It would vary from individual to individual. I think, you know, if they're involved in some kind of therapy, this would be a great discussion to have with their therapist. But again, I mean, I think I think it's really super important to bring partners on board here. And so I, I would hope, I would imagine that partners would be supportive and understanding and caring and, you know, wanting to do whatever they can to, to support their partner. So that would be ideal. And I think to feel like part of a team, right? Instead of like two separate players. Here. Right, right. Yeah. And I feel the one of the issue, at least based on what I hear from my uh, female client, is that they're, they're not possibly attracted. That's why their partner is taking the medication. But if they can they facilitate the conversation, at least in therapy session or with their partner in a trusting, vulnerable way, they kind of correct their way of thinking and check in with the partners what's going on with them. Right, exactly. And in terms of that, like not feeling attractive, I think that brings us to kind of the next point, which is, um, there can be a lot of misunderstanding, both for men and women, like about how these drugs actually work, particularly in terms of desire. And so I think many women, but also men think that these drugs make men horny, right? And that their physical presence is actually not required. And so what women need to feel turned on often is the feeling that they're wanted or desired, right? This emotional intimacy. So you add something like Viagra into the equation and they might think, oh, it's not me he wants, right? It's the Viagra talking. And I think that this can lead to emotions such as like resentment or a feeling of disconnection. And what's interesting about these medications is that actually a man does need to feel aroused. And he does need to experience desire in order for them to work. But I think that it's important that both partners understand the mechanism of how of how the medications actually work. Right. I, and I love you mentioned that topic because I feel like 
Sometimes people get the medication without getting enough education about it from their physician, and they go online. And, and online, you can find range of random information <laughs> on these topics. Exactly. Yeah, I think that you know, especially most men are getting it from their primary care physicians. They just don't have time in the appointment to like really sit down and talk about about how they work and all of that. And so there's this funny story of a man who gets a prescription. And he takes the Viagra and he's at home and then he's like sitting in front of his computer, just, I don't know, doing some bills or, you know, balancing his budget. And he's wondering, like, why is this not working? Right. And I think that's a perfect example of like, well, he didn't get the education that you don't just take it and it's right. gonna, like magically right, like work for you, that they're actually you have to engage with your partner and you have to be turned on and aroused. That's such an excellent point. Anything else you could come to your mind about the relationship piece? Yeah. So I think another really important piece to mention is that the painful sex piece of it. And so I think because these medications are so expensive, they can be up to $50 a pill. A lot of men kind of want to get their money's worth, right? Which I get by having sex as many times they can in a short period of time. And because these drugs actually shorten the interval between climax and achieving another erection, right, it makes uh, having sex multiple times even more possible. And so I think for couples who are older, right, the reality is that a woman's postmenopausal genital health can put her physically at odds with kind of her partner's newfound like drug assisted stamina, right? And so we know for women, as they age, their hormone hormones shift, they have reduced estrogen, right? So not only do they maybe have less sexual desire, but they also have decreased uh, vaginal elasticity and lubrication. And so sex can be more painful, and it, particularly with prolonged intercourse, right? In absence of kind of sufficient lubrication, it can actually do some damage. And so I think the problem can be especially daunting for older women. So those who are widowed or divorced and they're kind of just beginning to date again after years of being alone, right? There can be this huge mismatch between kind of the sexual issues of being an older woman and kind of their a man's desire for kind of prolonged pounding and driving intercourse. I am a shocked at the cost that could be up to $50. Yeah. <laughs> I had no yeah. idea about the cost. And absolutely what you say is accurate about having a repeated intercourse and penetration for some some women might not be a reality later in life or any time in their lives. Right. So <laughs> I think that's a very interesting issue that's important to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the final the final thing would be just being out of sync. And so particularly that a partner might have kind of adjusted to a life without sex, right? If that if that's how things have been. And so the partner might not want to have sex anymore for one reason or another, or maybe they actually are interested in having sex again, but they have some kind of fear around being intimate again. And so I think when a man starts taking these medications, they can be really out of sync. Right. So instead of going kind of to the natural rhythm of the relationship and what's going on like presently in the relationship, just going on on the 
this physiological response that to the medication that can necessarily it's not necessarily helpful, which is I'm so glad you brought that up because I also, as a therapist, I never thought about number of the things you mentioned, but they are very valid. And I think it's helpful for people to consider it when they're thinking about medication. Absolutely. So I know you are you're, you have wealth of great information, and I definitely want our listeners to be able to get in contact with you. So what would be the best way for them? Yeah, so um, they can check out my uh, website, which is www.drpomeranz.com. And so it's uh, www.drpomeranz.com. Perfect. I make sure I'll leave the information in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. This was a very helpful and informative episode. Good. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You too. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. I was delighted with the breadth of the information that Dr. Pomeranz had on PDE5 inhibitors. As a sex educator, I often talk to my clients about pros and cons of different medications because I know most physicians these days, unfortunately, they, they don't have time to talk about all the risk associated with medications in their 10 minutes appointment. And I highly believe that it's important to be informed consumer. Anyhow, this was our show today. And if you have a question, anything sex related, I would love to hear your voice. And you can leave your questions on my website, sexologypodcast.com. There is this blue tab that you can record your voice and we may feature it in our show. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.